This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. G'day everyone and welcome to another big episode of On The Grid here, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. Thanks for joining us again for another week. We're going to have a look at what happened at Phillip Island and the supercars, Formula Ones of course. We'll uh, check what happened there as well in China and we'll catch up with Braxy, talk about uh, the Circuit of Americas, had the MotoGP and we also had uh, World Superbikes on at the weekend as well. Plenty to talk about, let's get straight into it. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. And joining us on the line now to talk everything two wheels is Mark Brax. G'day, Braxy. How are you? All right, Shebex. How are you? Mate, I'm always fantastic when I talk to you because it means we get to talk about some amazing uh, results in MotoGP on a pretty fortnightly basis. And this week, no exceptions with Alex Rins getting a, a fantastic win. Yeah, well, his first win in the uh, MotoGP category to make it a trifecta, I suppose you could call it. He's won there in the Moto3 and the Moto2 in previous years. And uh, he's on second year on the Team X-Star Suzuki. And um, he's been getting better, the Suzuki's been getting better, but um, ran a magnificent race. He didn't qualify that well. I think he was in about sixth or seventh position uh, when they started the race. And uh, everybody was expecting, um, well, he was, I suppose you'd call him the governor or the sheriff of the American circuit over there, Mark Marquette, who had won every race at the Circuit of the Americas. And then when you look at the stats, uh, since ni- uh, 2011, there's been, he's won 12 Grand Prix there because um, as they changed circuits, they had a lot of, they, in one year, 2013, they had three Grand Prix there. Uh, they had two each in uh, 2014 and 2015. And it's only since 2016 that the Circuit of the Americas has been the only American race. But uh, Mark Marquez has been in a class of his own there. And, well, the way he took off on the race was like, if you can get to the first corner before him, you might have a chance. But he got to the first corner and, um, well, took off and started to gap them. And um, as I said in a previous... Sorry, you got me? I was going to say, yes, mate. I was going to say what a gap it was, too. I think within nine laps, just before he fell, he was nearly four seconds in front. Yeah, and he was just doing the usual thing, and he was looking like he was uh, doing the uh, operation to a, you know perfection again and with no pressure. I mean, as you said, nearly four-second lead with, uh, well, the old uh, old stage, you know, the GOAT, um, Valentino Rossi in second position holding off a pretty, well, strong pack who were pretty close behind and Cal Crutch, they crashed early. But, uh, yeah, just as everybody was thinking that Marquette was going to run off into the distance a la Argentina a few weeks before, he's gone at the end of the back straight and just had a little bit too much break, <coughs> pardon me, and away it went. And then from then on, mate, it was a comedy of errors. Uh, he picked the bike up from once from the left-hand side and it fell over on the right-hand side, so he had to pick that up again. And he's got back on the bike, and the marshals are frantically trying to bump start the bike again. But uh, the compression got the better of him, and then he um, basically he was riding side saddle, and it fell over again on him in the riding. And the, when he landed on the when he landed on the ground on his back, it was like, oh well, that's it. You could yeah. see even with the helmet and the letters on, it was like, oh, that's my day done. <laughs> it was quite humorous, actually, and uh, obviously he wasn't too happy about it then, but he was philosophical afterwards that, you know, OK, I lost the race, but I didn't lose that much. He's still fourth place in the championship, but 
I suppose, with him. Uh, Alex Finn's made his way through to get in front with Rossi of a couple of uh, laps to go. And because of Marquez dropping out and Crutchlow dropping out, that in, uh, the inherit allowed the Aussie um, Jack Miller to inherit third position for his first podium in the dry and his first podium since he won that remarkable race at Assen back in 2016. So nearly three years before between uh, visits to the podium. And Jack has proven again that on the same machinery as his, um, well, not teammates, but fellow Ducati riders in Divisioso, Petrucci and his teammate Bagnaia, um, he was the man. He was the fastest Ducati for most of the weekend. And I think with those two races, maybe he got a, uh, what did he finish in Argentina? I think he finished fifth. Yeah. Uh, uh, fourth or fifth, yeah. Um, and this one would jump in on the podium. I think he's um, pretty well almost secured a ride in the factory team next year because he's really outshone his teammate. The only thing Jack's got to do, well, only thing, I don't mean to sound flippant when I say that, but if he can just keep that up, and uh, keep the consistency going. I reckon he every, at every race he'll be getting one step closer to that elusive factory ride that he's been wanting for some time. So great result by Jack and uh, great result by everybody. Alex wins, mate. Take nothing away from him and that Suzuki. The Suzuki used to be the, well, the worst bike on the grid of the factory teams. Now it's probably the better um, of the lot of them because as the race goes on, the performance of the uh, Suzuki... Um, it stays more constant than what the other guys do with the tyres dropping off and everything. And Rins proved that to perfection by taking the lead off Rossi with just, what, about a lap and just under two laps to go. Um, and you'd think, oh, the pressure's on him, but Rossi threw a few things at him, but actually made the mistakes trying to force Rins into a mistake. And the likeable Rins with the hair like Harpo Marks, um, mate, you couldn't have met a happier guy at the end of that race. And, uh, he was, well, the whole Suzuki team, but great for the championship as well. Seeing so three races so far this year, we've had three different winners and three different manufacturers. So yeah. whatever Dorna are doing to the rules, it's certainly working and it's certainly helping us to get up at 4 or 30 in the morning to watch races from the other side of the world. It certainly is, Braxy. And 2016 is a number that people need to remember because it correlates nicely with this race. 2016 was the last time Suzuki won a race. That was at the British MotoGP. And 2016 yeah, was the last time Jack Miller was on a podium when he won at Assen. Yeah, so, uh, and that one you're talking about with the Suzuki, that was uh, Maverick Vignales, who'd, uh, well, basically won the race for Suzuki for the first time, I think it was about 16 years since uh, Kenny Roberts Sr. was on his way to, no, Kenny Roberts Jr. was on his way to a championship back in the year 2000. But some people say that wasn't even a, a Suzuki because it might have had the Suzuki branding on it. But thanks to the genius of the Australian Warren Willing and Chuck, the American Chuck Axler, who were in the Roberts team that basically looked after uh, that Suzuki for Kenny Roberts Jr. back there in 2000. It was a, um, an outside influence machine. They made all the casings for the cylinders and everything in a, in a dyno room in uh, California, while Warren Willing, who's been dead nearly four years now, um, he was the one that basically got the frame working for that uh, magnificent year of Suzuki. So, mate, it's looking good that um, the real Suzuki coming out of the factory, and as each race goes on, they've got every chance of being the, uh, jumping to the top step of the podium. When you look at Suzuki's last factory win was uh, Kevin Schwantz back in 1993. 20, that'll be 26 years ago by the end of the year. So, 
a long time between drinks. And as I said with uh, Marquez about his uh, winning streak at um, uh, in America, the longer you go without losing, the closer you are to losing. And so conversely, the longer you go without winning, the closer you are to winning. So... I think moving for, well, I know it's, it's becoming a bit of a cliche, isn't it? The best season of, uh, in living memory, but this one is shaping up to be an absolute cracker. Davisio well, uh, now with his fourth position in the in the race has inherited the lead in the championship from Rossi yeah. and Marquez there in fourth position. So it's uh, going to be very interesting when they uh, regroup in, what's that, three weeks' time with the, uh, the um, 7th and 8th of May, I think it is. Uh, when they regroup with the, uh, the the European season, uh, starting at uh, Jerez in southern Spain, so an absolute uh, um, ripper of a race on Sunday. Good Moto Two race. Uh, Tom Luthie broke through for his first race in a long while in the Moto Two category. Uh, pardon me. Um, and from him, it was uh, Marshall Schroeder, the policy that was second. Jorge Navarro was third, and a great comeback. Mattia Pacini uh, came out of retirement for this race to jump into the uh, one of the teams that uh, needed a rider, and he jumped up the fourth. And uh, a lot of people might not, not know a lot about Pacini, but um, when he was 11 years old, he had a very serious motocross accident, hmm. and he's only got about uh, 20% use of his right arm. So he actually uses the throttle and the front brake on the left-hand side of the bike. Wow. That's so, as whereas in the throttle, in, in normal motorcycle, the throttle and the, the front brake are yeah. on the, um, the left-hand handlebar. This is uh, all on the right, um, sorry, on the right-hand handlebar. I'm getting a bit um, dyslexic. Um, he uses the left handlebar for throttle and brake. So, a great effort by him. Remy Gardner um, didn't have the best qualifying, but made his way through the field to get into a pretty strong position but unfortunately run off and uh, started basically dead last again, but fought his way back to uh, finish in 11th position and uh, shown that he's got plenty of the old man mongrel in him when he wants to uh, get through a, get through the crowd, so to speak. So yeah. that probably not the result he wanted, but I think anybody that's been watching closely this year will see that uh, Remy Garner is a real title contender in the Moto2 category this year. He certainly is. Let's turn our attention to World Superbikes and they were at Assen in the Netherlands, and uh, Alverio oh. Batista just continues to go from strength yeah, to strength. well, I don't know if you watched it on the Saturday when they were meant to have a race on the Saturday oh, afternoon. Yeah, the, it snowed, didn't it? It snowed. Well, it was at the end of the Supersport qualifying race, qualifying Super Bowl, pardon me. Uh, they actually had to can the last few minutes of it because of the, uh, the snowstorm that did hit the track at that time. Um, so it was... A, I've never understood why I have a race at Assen at this time of the year. And yeah. You go to Assen in the middle of the sun when you can get freezing cold conditions. And uh, they actually had to abandon the rest of the day's proceedings on the Saturday at Assen. So they regrouped. They uh, cancelled the Super Pole race on the Sunday and replaced that with the race that was meant to be on the Saturday afternoon. So they had the two full-distance races Sunday. But as you said, Alvaro Bautista um, continuing his domination. 11 wins from 11 starts in the championship this year. Before the uh, weekend commenced, uh, they did a bit of uh, tweaking with the uh, the regular, well, not the regulations, but with the, the engines of the bikes, and they dropped uh, the rev limit of the Ducatis by 250 revs per minute. 
and allowed that Hondas 500 revs per minute and kept everybody else the same. But uh, anybody watching a race knows or saw and would have understood that you could take a thousand revs off the young Duke Caddy and Bautista would be still in there winning the races. He's just a class act. Yeah, no, um, certainly is. Moto GP reject, but he's just showing that there is a big gulf between uh, the talent on the Moto GP grid and a superbike grid. And that's no offence to the guys that are racing the superbikes, but I think that uh, the talent and the, the determination comes out because of how, uh, well, intense a Moto GP grid is these days that you've got to be right on your game to be up there with the best of them. But uh, Jazz Davis, who is uh, Bautista's teammate, he started to show a bit of form. He got up the second position in that uh, second race on Sunday afternoon to show that he is starting to come to grips with the idiosyncrasies of the V4 Ducati. And Johnny Ray, well, again, uh, he was had a bit of a battle on his hands. He got into the lead off the start in that second race, and we had a bit of a race for the lead on our hands for a while until Bautista got in front. But that, uh, while well, he disappeared into the distance again, the battles for the miners was just as intense with the local hero, Michael Vandermark, on the Paddy Yamaha, uh, coming through to uh, claim a couple of podiums and a couple of the last couple of laps of that uh, second race, absolutely monumental. Him and Johnny Ray bashing bars and bashing fairings. And I think they were separated at the end by a few thousandths of a second as they crossed the line. So... While Bautista is dominating, there is still plenty of action in the uh, Superbike category. And they move to Imola for the next race in a month's time. They've got a few weeks off the boys in the world. Yeah, well, that's, it's probably going to be something that's uh, it's a pretty tight and twisty track, Imola, right sitting in the middle of the, the city of Imola in the parklands. Very unique uh, 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 vista and where you are because... Uh, you walk through the park and there's a racetrack and you've got all these home units and well not home units but apartments and buildings around the track. Businesses are businesses a very very picturesque place, very tight. So it might play into the hands of the Yamaha and uh, the Kawasaki a bit more to keep the Ducati in track. But I'll tell you what, you know whatever they do, I think it's going to take a monumental effort to uh, beat their sister and. I know it's a bit early in the season, but I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be surprised if he wins every race of the year if he keeps like, going the way he's going. That would be an amazing feat. Braxy, we've got to head off. Thank you for your time as always, mate. We'll talk again shortly. All right, mate. No worries. In a couple of weeks, no doubt. Look forward to it. Mark Brax talking motorbikes right here on The Grid. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, joining us on the line from the racetalk.com, we say a big g'day to Richard Crowell. How are you, Crowley? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Have you recovered from what was a massive weekend for you at Phillip Island? No, <laughs> no I, I barely left the commentary box. Uh, not, there, there are worse things in life to do than that, yes. I can tell you. No, it was a good weekend. Uh, really enjoyed it. Lots to unpick, I think, from that weekend. And indeed, that two-week stretch of uh, supercars racing and all the sports that went with it. And we'll uh, also talk a bit of uh, supercars as well with award-winning photographer Mark Walker, who joins us on the line now. Mark, hello to you. Hello, Shebex. Hello, Rich. Hello, everyone. Uh, hmm, interesting weekend, that one, wasn't it, boys? It was definitely an interesting weekend. Before we break it down and have a look at it, uh, it was our first sort of real feel for what NASCAR go through, having consecutive race weekend meetings. It's not too often, and it hasn't happened for a long time. I'm, I'm trying to remember when was the last time we actually had consecutive weekends of racing uh, in Australia. Yeah, from a supercar perspective, they did do it, uh, it like early 2010s from yeah. memory. It's happened once or twice, but 
Yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, geographically, it works from a, a Tassie to Phillip Island point of view, just across the uh, across the Bass Strait, and you're there. But as we were leaving on Sunday night from the circuit quite late and watching the, the race to be first transporter out of the paddock, we sort of spared a thought for our mates from Queensland because I think it's probably hardest on those guys. Um, logistically, it kind of works because you just do it all in one trip, but keep in mind, they've gone Brisbane or Gold Coast down to Tasmania to Phillip Island. They're now back home, which takes a couple of days quick turnaround and then straight across to Perth in two weeks' time for the next round of the championship. So it's a really busy, tough period for those guys especially. Uh, so I'm not sure whether they want to keep doing the back-to-back stuff. But um, from a entertainment point of view, it certainly worked. And um, I, I like back-to-back race many, so I've no problem with it. Yeah, exactly. Mark, your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it comes back around in the winter season when everything's up north. We've got Darwin Towns for QR in a row, so it all sort of swings and roundabouts for the Queensland team. So can't really complain, I guess. But uh, it'll be interesting to see which way the calendar moves with uh, possibly more running in the summertime sort of thing. That's going to put a bit more uh, bit more activity out there. And, I mean, I guess the one good thing that we had was no big tear-ups at Simmons Plains for acquiring spare cars or massive rebuilds in that in-between week. Yeah, that's definitely a massive advantage uh, for all the teams not to have to do anything like that in the next uh, 10 days or so before the trucks start heading over to Perth. Uh, guys, let's uh, analyse what did happen at Phillip Island. I suppose the first thing to really talk about, and uh, Richard, we were talking about it with Dale last week, we didn't really get any clear indication about whether uh, a parity situation or whether the centre of gravity situation or anything had really been fixed at Tasmania because it was uh, such a different track. Having the back-to-back and having Philip on and having two weeks of racing now, are we any closer to knowing whether supercars have these cars very much on a, a level pegging? Well, yes and no, and, and that that we, we were right, and we'll blow our own trumpet here because we've been saying since the start of the year that, that they weren't going to get a clear reading until this point on who was where, and I think we're correct. What what we do know is, and, and there's a, a great story that the team put together on the racetalk.com about crunching the numbers of, of who's where in terms of relative pace year on year from Phillip Island. And what we've learned is that all the Fords are a little bit quicker, which is what we've been saying. Uh, at Phillip Island, at least the Nissans were fast. They were a bit quicker than they were last year to the tune of about a tenth of a second, though they were completely and utterly useless down in Tasmania. So what do we read out of that? Got no idea. Um, most of the Holden teams are about where they were 12 months ago. So there's a net gain you'd expect for the Fords with a brand new car. That's how motor racing works. Uh, and then Triple Eight are miles off the pace, and they have been, as we've been saying, the biggest uh, change from this the, the ban of the multiple spring front and rear ends, especially. They've they've just been hammered by that, and they were absolutely nowhere on the weekend. It was almost shocking to see how bad they were. And the most telling thing was that pole lap comparison. Supercar shared the video between McLaughlin's thing, which looked like it's on rails. Uh, Jamie Winkup was driving a sprint car and driving it badly as well. So miles off the pace, um, and they've taken a massive step back. So it goes back to the old argument of how can you measure parity between the two brands when none of the other Holden teams have stepped up massively and the key Holden team for the last decade are really struggling and a long way down the field. It's uh, it's an interesting question. So let's hope they don't jump into any conclusions and we see how the next bunch of rounds plays out. 
Mark, what I did like in that uh, story on the racetalk.com about uh, the, the comparison of, of times and the like is the supercars chart, which shows a, a comparison of a Jamie Winkup Q1 lap and a Scott McLaughlin Q3 lap. And I think what really stands out for me is the amount of extra time that McLaughlin has his foot on the accelerator. Well, looking at the, having a bit of a deep dive in there, I mean, I'm not entirely sure where they drive that those figures from. If they're true and correct, then it paints a very interesting picture that where Winkup's losing all of his time is out of the tight hairpins. Now, that's not anything to do with with aero. That's all to do with suspension setup. Like, and they admitted after the test day that the transition back to linear springs was a big move for them, and they've struggled and. You know, Roland's doing what he has to do. You know, that's his job to go out there and say what he has to say. But looking at that, looking at that onboard footage, it's the slower speed stuff where the AAA cars are really having a big battle. And, you know, it's just hard, isn't it? I mean, I think that where the disparity is is with Scott McLaughlin. He's just mm. in another league at the moment. And looking at the stats, that pole lap on Sunday, where it was six tenths better than the field, that's 31 metres or seven car lengths. Seven car lengths over a lap. That's a lot, <laughs> That's it? incredible. Yeah. But being relative to all the other cars spread over the last six races where he's got the pole, that pole time, that margin to second has grown each and every time. Yeah. But you look at it, everyone else is closer together on that sixth most, most recent race. That's the closest the rest of the field's been. Yeah. The only disparity there is that driver of car 17. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And it's just, McLaughlin's so good over one lap and track position's so important in supercars at the moment that you get pole and unless you get beaten by your teammate in the pit stop shuffle like happened to him on Sunday, you're not going to lose or, or it'd be very, very unlikely that you lose a race. So it just that qualifying pace is remarkable and, and in a series so even, whatever he and Ludo are doing in particular on that car and his affinity for one lap pace is just it is awe-inspiring to watch. So the, the, the parity problem at the moment is is Scott McLaughlin, and that's about it. And the other the other interesting thing, as we touched on before, is that only intermediately are other Holden teams stepping up to the mark to try and challenge them. So early in the season, Brad Jones Racing had a couple of really good results. Erebus are now starting to be a little bit on song. Dave Reynolds, good result in Simmons. Anton, uh on Sunday at Phillip Island was really strong, which was impressive. And his race pace was every bit as good, um, certainly as everyone behind him and a little bit behind the two red Fords. But if you compare Tickford Racing, and they're in Mustangs as well, um, if the Mustang was the supercar that everyone's saying it is, they surely should be up there. But there's nothing between the best Holdens at the moment and the Tickford Racing cars. So as Mark quite correctly said, it's the two red Fords and then the rest at the moment. Tell you one podium that we didn't expect to see, I wouldn't have thought, on the weekend was that of Andre Heimgartner's uh, fantastic effort by him in the Nissan. Yeah, loved it. Uh, I've known Andre for quite some time since he raced in Formula Ford. He's already been, always been a guy with some talent. Um, he was really good in Porsche Carrera Cup, which is a pretty biased here, but a pretty good indication if you can steer or not. So he uh, he did a super job. And But it was just surprising, Mark, like Nissan were, the best result they got in Simmons Plains was 15th. So from eight mm. starts, four cars each race, the best they could manage was one 15th place. And they turn around a week later, and all of a sudden they're top 10 contenders. That's another 
strange storyline from this weekend. But I thought it was a terrific drive from Anton, and Rick was impressive as well. I mean, Rick's come out today and said that they have to go and figure out how they did it because they just don't know. Because <laughs> yeah. it's all good while well saying that they can plug in last year's setup that worked there. But they've mm-hmm. had that massive change to the linear spring. So they just would have on, had to have done something different. Just on that then, Mark, is that a, a massive kudos and a thumbs up for Andre Heimgartner? If they don't know how the car did it, then obviously the driver's going to have a fair bit of uh, effort in that. I think it's uh, across the board. I mean, obviously the team put the setup in there that was capable of doing the job. So they obviously backed themselves by what they did. And, you know, you've always got to sort of do that. But, uh, you know, once again, Andre qualified well, which is something. And that's the thing with Scotty, is that it's not Formula One where every time you roll out of the garage, you've got fresh boots on. Because yep. having that pace over one lap, you've got to back yourself. And if you can back yourself to be perfect, not overdo it, not underdo it, because, I mean, that's so much of the time that will be lost in qualifying is where you don't back yourself enough. But he goes out there and backs himself perfectly every time. And that's amazing. That's like going down to Bob Jane, putting new shoes on, and having to set a lap record driving down to Coles. You know, like, you're not going to do it. No, you're not. You're exactly right. Uh, having said that, though, Bob Jones do supply some great tyres, and uh, you'd probably be more of a chance if you were to get them from there than anywhere else. Uh, Fabian Coulthard, if we're saying that Scott McLaughlin is so good at the moment, then, gee is Fabian Coulthard can't be too far behind. Yeah, and, and Scotty's come out in the week and identified Fabian as a title contender, which, if you're driving yourself forward, you'd want to be this year, I think, but... Um, yeah, it, it, we all sort of forgot how long it's been since he won a race. Um, it was Winton last year was was Fabian's last victory, so it was it was overdue, uh, and and good to see him maximise that. And yeah, it, it was everyone was a bit surprised when he emerged in front after the final round of pit stops uh, in race ten. But uh, from there, he managed it. Realistically, he was never going to be challenged overtly from Scotty unless they had a massive drama in car twelve and were really struggling with fuel or or tyre degradation, whatever it might have been. So, um, no, I thought he drove a really measured race. We've got to keep in mind that the one thing for that team, their number one goal is to get that primo bit of landscape back at the end of pit lane. So they might have won the Drivers' Championship last year, but they lost teams' title to Red Bull. Um, They're very, very keen to get that back. So they need both of those cars to capitalise when they can. Um, Maybe they, they didn't get quite that level of service last year in a a difficult FGX Falcon that McLaughlin got the most out of and Fabian couldn't. Um, now he's in a car that he can extract the most out of. Um, they need to make hay while that sun's shining. And as a result, they've got an enormous lead already in the team's championship. Yeah, they certainly yeah, Rich, have. I'd, I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to say, Rich, that uh, after those first couple of shakedowns at the head of the new Mustang, Fabian came out and said, this thing suits me better. Mm. And that was at the end of last year that he knew that he'd be on this year. And he's mm. doing what he has to do. I mean, this sort of makes the whole driver picture thing a bit, a bit more murky, doesn't it? Because it was all that Chaz was going to be sitting in that seat next season. Fabian's now doing the job. Like, he doesn't have to win every week. He just has to be following Scotty around, or if he sneaks in for a win, good on him. But he's doing yep. the job, isn't he? Yep, 100%. And, and Penske, as we know, is just it's, it's all about the team. And everything they talk about, it's all about the team. And that's not just here. That's in their IndyCar team and their NASCAR team. So if they finish 1-2 in the championship and it's Scott first, Fabian second, but they've won the team's title as well, then you'd think that the captain's going to be pretty happy with that. And why would you change your driver? Because you've ticked all the boxes. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a, it's a big, big plus mark for Fabian in the way he's performing this year. 
Todd Hazelwood must be pinching himself, boys, about uh, the way that that team has improved so much. And obviously, it's a, a much better car that they have as well for him to steer. But under that category as well, do we put him down as probably one of the more unluckier drivers of the weekend as well? Well, he got fenced, didn't he? He did by badly. James, James Courtney. It was a pretty hammer to move. Really disappointing. Cold tyres. Opening lap of the race, sure. But, um, you know, the, the irony of that is, and we've been talking about, Mark, the pace of the Fords, um, the, two of the fastest Holdens in qualifying for that race, um, one of them KO'd another one early in the race, and they were both out of contention. It just They're not helping their own course here, are they? It was the sort of thing that Ford used to do back in the day when they were on the back foot. Wasn't it? Like, remember yeah. back to the AU Falcons? There'd always be two Falcons glued together in the fence. But, uh, yeah. yeah, bad luck to Toddy there, but obviously he's doing a, a good job. Um, and I guess what he's showing is that the trip like kit is useful. I mean, Winterbottom put it on pole with Simmons Plains, and, and he's really been punching above his weight, was in the top 10 there for the bulk of the weekend. So, the kid's capable, and, and Toddy's doing a really good job with it. Well, and it's even more capable for a team that's actually used to, I suppose, uh, linear springs. And that's, yeah. where, and that's where this whole thing comes into. I mean, this is a, a very similar to car to what the other guys are driving, but because they've been used to linear springs for the last 12 months, it's nothing different for the driver or the team. Obviously, Triple Eight really struggling with that whole setup. Yeah, well, it, it just validates the theory, doesn't it, that that the the factory team, the works team, and, and bear in mind, they're the team that developed the ZB Commodore as well. So they designed that car to suit the way that, Red Bull Racing, Triple Eight, like their cars set up, whether that's a, an aero balance thing or whatever it might have been. So they, they've probably been whacked doubly with that. And, yeah, I agree that it's just validated the fact that um, that they're struggling, that their customer cars with teams that don't have that depth of 10 years' worth of experience in playing with tricky springs uh, and dampers, um, that, that, that they're performing. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good if you're a single-car triple-eight customer team in most instances. Well, the thing is, Rich, that with the ZB, when they designed it, they put a lot more of the aero emphasis on the rear to mm. cure what they wanted to do in the car. So they put that emphasis on the rear, which worked well last year with the multi-spring setups that they used, but it obviously hasn't been doing the job now. The thing that they've got going in their favour is, one, they're smart, they'll figure it out, Course. And two, they've also got the two um, Super 2 cars running yep. out of their stable this year as well. You think back over the years, the last time they ran a Super 2 team was in 2013. It was Casey Stoner and it wasn't really relevant because in 2012 they banned the dual springs from the Super 2 series. Yeah. Mm. So this year they can have two full-spec cars in the Super 2. Come the next round of Perth, they can send them all out with all sorts of weird and wonderful setups in first practice and it'll sort of ease that um, that tuning time because not only have they got their main series cars, they've got the development series cars, and then they've got the custom cars as well that they can throw some other ideas at. Yep. They'll figure it out. Like, it's going to happen. Uh, who cops the whack for the Red Bull pit lane absolute shocking stuff up with Jamie Winkup? <laughs> Mark, that's yours. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I think uh, for, they came for out. For said... team, that was just disgraceful. I came out and said it was just a human error on the spike guy, and that happens. I mean, you know, you don't want it to happen, and you don't expect it to happen from the best team in pit lane, but uh, they've just been a bit scrappy, haven't they? You know, at the end of last year, there were a few issues there at Pukekohe and at Newcastle, and they'll go back to the workshop, and they'll practice, and they'll practice, and they'll practice until they run out of gas bottles, and they'll sort it out. And 
that's the problem. They're running with such fine tolerances. The pressure's right on there. They're at the front of the field. They're on the back foot. They need to make the cleanest pit stops they can. And the pressure's on. But, you know, they're good enough. They'll figure it out. Yeah. They're still the best team in the pit lane, and they will be in perpetuity with, with the level they're already at. So it's not like they've forgotten how to go motor racing. They'll, they'll tune it up. New rules came into effect, or at least they tried uh, on the weekend at Phillip Island. Of course, uh, no pitting under safety cars. We didn't really get the opportunity to sort of test that, did we? No. What what it did do, I think, was force the strategic hand a little bit, though, and, and it made people complete their stops. As soon as they could get all of the fuel in the car, they were going to pit. Um, no one, or at least very few people, as far as I could see, took a gamble to run long um, because if you got caught out with a safety car late and you hadn't completed your second compulsory stop, and, and it's probably more prevalent in the 200k races where you stop twice rather than the, the Saturday race, um, you, you're going to get absolutely screwed with track position if you get caught out by a safety car. So I, I think it, it closed a lot of the strategic variables, but whether it changed the racing of Phillip Island or not, it's too early to tell. I, I'm not convinced that it did. Um, they probably need to do more trials on it. And at a track where safety cars may be more oh, relevant, not the word, more likely, I suppose. Maybe a Darwin, we, you often get a bit of carnage up there. Uh, maybe a better option to, to see if that works. Or try it in one of the races at Townsville, which is, which is fun for a safety car. Throw it, throw it into one of the longer races and see what happens. And, and if it does actually change the outcome, and then make a, a call. But as a, a sample size, I don't think it's good enough to, to work out whether closing the pitch is the way to go or not. I think it has the potential to work at Phillip Island because it's a hard track on tyres. And I think yeah. it would have the potential to work at, say, an old Barbagallo. Like yeah. You've got the new surface coming up there, which is yeah. probably going to negate a lot of that. The tyres will be pretty good this time around. But if you've got a track with high tyre wear, you don't want to be sitting on tyres for 75% mm. of the race, do you? You want to yeah. hit as late as you can, and which McLaughlin, is the optimal strategy. Yeah, McLaughlin said in the press conference on Saturday that um, what it might also do, this rule in, in having that rule or not having the rule, he said that if the rule wasn't in place, you may have had people in a late safety car belting in to throw tyres at it, uh, like you say, to, to carve your way through the field on new rubber where tyre digs are a big change. Yeah. So, but you still could have done that, Rich, because it wasn't a compulsory pit stop. If you'd already done Correct. your two stops or your one stop, yeah. it wouldn't have mattered. But I think the thing is that if it, if you, as long as this rule's in place and you've got two compulsory stops, you're going to be trying to do those as early as you can because you don't want to be caught out. If you're on the track and you've got one of your two stops done, you're going to get screwed with track position because you'll have to pit after the, the field's all been regrouped. So, whether that's the roll of the dice and that's the way they want to take it, then that's fine. But um, if if that's not, then it's obviously going to be an issue. But I think they need to try it more. I, I'm not not convinced yet. Yeah, the thing for me, boys, yeah. like Phillip Island pit lane, there are 50 pit garages in the Phillip Island pit lane. <laughs> it goes a very, very long way up from where the supercar teams ended. Now, it was great for Porsche Carrera Cup because they got to use 10 of the garages at the end for half their field to pit in in lovely you know, dry, non-windy conditions. But why don't they just spread the field out at Phillip Island? It's such a tight lane. It's not wide enough for, for touring car racing. Why don't they just spread the field out there? They've got 50 garages for 24 cars. Would make sense. You know, everyone could have two bays quite easily. You could double stack at Phillip Island. It would be the easiest thing in the world. It's a bit baffling for mine. 
Hmm, interesting. Well, uh, I don't know if we'll ever find the answer out to that, but... Uh, yeah. Probably not. No, probably not. Uh, the other, the other, you mentioned Porsches, though. Uh, fantastic, and it's been our bugbear for the first three rounds of supercars has been the support categories. Fantastic to see some great support categories and some amazing racing. Uh, that Kumo Super 3 Series, it's exactly where it's meant to be. Some great young kids, great racing. The cars that uh, they'll be moving up to, you know, getting the, the opportunity to practice in cars that they hopefully will move up to in the next five or six years and, and keeping supercars alive with good talent. Yeah, and, and I'm probably a bit biased because I'm calling it, but, man, it's better than Super 2 at the moment. <laughs> and again, small sample size, but the racing at the island was frenetic. It was really, really competitive stuff. Uh, and if it wasn't for Toyota 86s looking like a uh, Moto 3 race, uh, Super 3 might have been the pick of the racing over the weekend. Yeah, really cool. And, you know, the guys on the podium were 16, 17, and 18 years age of age. Uh, and then three of the guys in the top five outside of that were also teenagers. So the, the future is bright. There's a lot of talent in there and, and a lot of big teams jumping into back it. But the privateers can still have a crack as well and, and run towards the front, which is great. So, yeah, that, that's going to be a cracking championship this season. And the driver, the kid, that wins it is going to very much have earned it and, and earn some stripes on his way up the, the supercar ladder because quite often what these kids miss out when they jump into Super 2 is that ability to cut and thrust, that real elbows-out racing that you need. If you've ever watched a Super 2 race, watch from about eighth place back, and it's absolutely brutal. Uh, and and they're, they're going to get that for the lead in Super 3 in every round this year. So I, I reckon it's, it's a huge tick in the box, and that's why guys like Paul Morris are sending did like Boxini into it because uh, the, the prep is perfect. And Mark, you know what I reckon? That Toyota 86 racing, that was oh. where it was at. That was so good. And I reckon the highlight for mine was Richard's man crush, Garth Tander. Like, <laughs> you two have a future in television. I mean, that's that's really where your heart's at, isn't it, Rich? Yeah. But he he's, is so good. He should be calling full-time. And the moment he... Uh, it was announced that he was out of that drive at GRM. I was I was saying that he should be commentating, but he was outstanding. What a great addition to the broadcast. And, man, he drove the wheels off that thing. That racing was awesome. Uh, I, one of those races, I don't think I'm speaking out of school, it was just before a supercar session, and I was standing in the back, back of the com box, and Scaife, Prompton, Nate Prendergast, the boss of TV, were all sitting in there watching this thing with mouths open going, man, this racing is outstanding it was a really really good show and they got through i think all by one of the races without a safety car as well so full credit for putting on a a good show but a clean one as well whereas last year they had a bit of carnage so positive stuff 40 cars looked great it was uh, pretty wild yeah it certainly was no doubt about that and uh, also we should congratulate jordan love as well for his uh, efforts in porsche carrera cup Uh, another great weekend for him well Bex, can we just talk about that because sonic motor racing now so so, arguably, you know, very nice. Uh, arguably, Porsche Carrera Cup Australia is one of the most competitive championships in the country at the moment, outside of supercars, of course. Um, Michelin GT3 Cup is in the top five, surely, with the bunch of young kids they've got this year. Um, Sonic's won the last nine races in a row between those two series. So, seven in Carrera Cup, three in Cup Challenge. They've finished one, two in six races and one, two, three in two of them. Uh, and they've won the last two rounds in Carrera Cup, the first round of Cup Challenge. That is a race team at the moment, to use escapism, operating in the 
very, very, very high level. So I think they deserve praise for that. That often gets missed because they're on the undercard. But what that team's achieving right now is extraordinary. No doubt about that. And, uh, yeah, we might try and get a Michael Ritter or a Michael Henry on the show in the next week or two and uh, give us their sort of perspective. They wanted to actually do a podcast together, but I don't know if the uh, I don't know if we're allowed to. I, I just the, the, look the, the internet is generally uncensored, but I think that might even be too too uncensored for <laughs> Maybe one day, maybe one. Wow! Day. Hey guys, let's uh, turn our attention to Formula One before we wrap it up as well. I uh, actually before we do, uh, we move to Perth now. Night racing. We saw what it, uh, the impact that it had on uh, the season in 2018 up in Sydney. We're expecting the Perth night race to be a spectacular. Uh, Perth, Perth, night, Perth racing itself lends to pretty much be up the front of the field and you're, you're pretty much home. Will that be the same? Oh, jeez. Look, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, we've got the resurface there as well. So that's going to be a bit interesting for the racing. But for mine, I think they buggered Barbagallo up when they put that pit lane in the middle. They really did make a lot of the sight lines quite difficult for the spectators because you used to be able to stand anywhere down the bottom and you'd see absolutely everything. And that would have been perfect at night. But now you're sort of stuck with what you've got in front of you there. So it was a bit interesting. I mean, time zone-wise, it's fairly late Saturday night, isn't it? I mean, mm. the races are sort of scheduled to finish about a quarter to ten. Uh, Friday and Saturday night, so yeah, past my bedtime, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, if you watch a Friday night football game, though, that generally yep. finishes about the same time. So, and they they rate hugely well. So that so I'm not sure that's going to be a massive issue in terms of their numbers. I, I'm I'm really interested to see from a numbers perspective what it does, and in the end, that's what it's all about. A for the crowd at the track, and first one that's been struggling for the last couple of years and that needed a a reinvigoration of some kind. So I hope for Perth's sake, that it, it gives them a big boost because we need to keep going over to the West. It's an important market. Mm. There's a lot of big-dollar sponsors and corporates over there. Uh, and for two, the TV numbers, you know, prime primetime supercar racing, important. Uh, let, let's see what those numbers do and if there's a spike. And I think I think if there is, they'll have enough data between that and Sydney last year to, to start making a definitive decision on where they take this thing in the future and gearing it towards that summer-oriented schedule maybe with the break in the middle and more of this twilight racing um in the end it all comes down to dollars and cents and with a tv deal up in a year or two uh if they can go to them and go look we're going to do more twilight racing we've proved that it can rate its its backside off then uh it might be a good thing for the sport fingers crossed let's hope it is formula one boys uh not sure whether that's uh doing a good thing for itself in the sport at the moment. We thought it might after the first couple of races, but it just seems now that Mercedes have sort of got their skates on, haven't they? And they seem to be definitely the front-running team and the one that everyone has to catch, and I'm just not confident that they can. You know, I didn't see the Chinese Grand Prix. We were pretty busy at the island. So uh, read the report, though, and uh, it certainly didn't sound like a thrilling race by all the cats, which is China's usually pretty good, that track. Of all the Herman Tilke drones, that's the um, generally been the better one for producing good racing. So, yeah, that's a shame. Uh, it'll be really disappointing if, after the early promise, Mercedes just go and smoke everyone again. But uh, until that series gets their regulations and their package right for the future, uh, it's going to be pretty hard work for anyone else. Yeah, before yeah copy-paste there, Rich. It yeah. was uh, very much copy-paste. It was the same, same deal again, wasn't it? I mean, it was, uh, it's interesting. 
uh, before Saturday's win by Richmond over Port Adelaide. We were doing some cleaning of my wardrobe, and my wife said, do you want to throw out this yellow T-shirt? And I said, yeah, thinking it was my Daniel Ricciardo one, thinking, no, well, it's not going to be used this year. Oh, you we, jumped I, off the bandwagon I, so bloody we didn't, quickly. I, I didn't, we didn't. I'm glad I held on to it. <laughs> you, you're, you're, now, I, I won't say anything bad about Richmond because I know you've backed them for life, but that you're like the number of people that jumped onto the Tigers after their premiership. Just just jump on the train and now you're jumping off it again. Danny Rick will be just fine, Chebex. You, you've got no, to move on not, from this. He won't be in 2019, though. I mean, let's, let, let's no, be we honest. All, we all know that. No one, no one thought he was going to win a race. Hey, what, what we should talk about is uh, jumping on bandwagons. We should all jump on the bandwagon of the Pythagoras back at six hour this weekend Ooh, yes. uh, up, at, up at Mount Panorama. So uh, the, the third of the three great enduros on the mountain and uh, production car racing at its absolute finest. Last year, the car that won the race wasn't even in the top three with uh, 12 minutes to go when the race restarted after a safety car and it ended up winning. So uh, like all Bathurst enduros, uh, anything can and usually does happen. It's very much looking forward to it uh, this weekend, Mark, as I, as I know you are as well. Yes, Rich. Uh, it's a good thing, very good thing. Production cars in the mountain, the Easter, some good traditions there. What do you reckon? Anything but a BMW to win? BMW's had such great form there, haven't they? Yeah, they've never been beaten in that race, and they're just such the ultimate all-round package um, of straight line speed, balance across the top. They're good in the rain if it's wet. Not that it's going to be this weekend. The weather looks absolutely perfect, uh, which means I've just absolutely jinxed it and it'll snow. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, hard hard to see anyone else knocking them off. But there's pretty close a little field. There's some good cars. Um, George and Andrew Medici driving with Jero Gray in a big Falcon uh, FG GTF, which will be pretty good. Uh, and John Bow in a HSV uh, VF GDS, which will be a, a rocket ship around there, I would have thought, if they can keep some brakes under it. So a uh, couple of good little combos. Quite like it. So uh, And actually, the dark horse of mine, Garth Walden, Jumping into the Cavage Brothers uh, Mitsubishi Lancer yeah. and you know, plug Garth Walden into anything, it tends to go pretty quick. Mm. So, uh, looking to see what uh, GW can do in that car. And for us that aren't uh, actually going to Bathurst and spending some family time uh, over Easter, where can we catch the live action? Uh, live on Fox Sports 506. Amazing. Uninterrupted. Yeah, uninterrupted flag to flag coverage. Uh, it's also on KO Sports. And hot tip before you write in and complain that it's not on free to air television. KO, sign up, 14 days free trial. You don't have to pay a cent. Cancel it at the end if you want. You won't, though. But uh, And jump on and watch the race. It, it genuinely is a good fun race. It's such a different vibe to the 12-hour and the 1,000. It's, it's got its own little unique place in uh, Bathurst folklore. And a uh, brand-new tyre MRF on board this year for the first time, which just throws another variable at it. It should be pretty interesting. Yeah. Can I just put in a quick plug there for the KO? Because I've yeah. been running that program lately, and it is brilliant. Because you can screen and screen four different channels at the same time. Yep, you it's can. unbelievable. And, and uh, with supercars, you can, you can do that. In-car action yeah. and all that sort of stuff. You can do all that, and you can watch replays of other races while the live stuff's going on. It's fantastic. So, um, yeah, sign up free. Do it. Get a get a to Riley, the uh, KO Sports PR guy. Uh, we'll send you the bill. Thanks. Uh, sponsorship of uh, On The Grid might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think it could be, couldn't it? I'd love it, actually. <laughs> uh, let's uh, 
chat again next week, guys. Uh, maybe not. We'll see how we go with these. No, we will have to because we'll have to wrap up what happens in the six hour at Bathurst and uh, make our uh, predictions then for Perth. So let's do that, boys, next week. Have another chat about uh, all this and more. And don't forget on the racetalk.com. The uh, all-popular power rankings are up, I think, today, Richard, or tomorrow? No, it's the next. They'll be up. Uh, by the time this podcast goes live, they will be live as well. So uh, jump on, hot or not, from Stillip Island. And don't forget, we want people to have their say uh, at the race talk after each round of the supercars. Uh, if enough crazy stuff goes on at Bathurst this weekend, we might just roll one out after the six hour as well. Such is the demand, boys. Yes. The demand is high <laughs> for the power ranking, so we might roll one out. But, uh, yeah, get it up there. We, we tear some people up, but uh, but nicely, I and think. Also, and also, while you're on the race talk, don't forget to check out that analysis, the numbers that show who's where. Uh, a really yeah. interesting read in regards to uh, where people are up and down over the last couple of years. Yeah, a couple of members of our team put some pretty deep research into that. So uh, looking forward to uh, doing more of that as the year goes on as well. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, a final one for you, Richard. What was it like to sit on that throne? Uh, oh, uh, that, that's private. Oh no, the Game of Thrones. No, no. Well, well I'm a uh, I'm a GOT fan and, and sat down and thoroughly enjoyed episode one of the final season. Uh, no, it was good. It was good leadership. I like it. I like it. I, I could be king, Shipex. Still, never seen modest, an episode, Mark. Have never seen an episode. Should I be abonished for that? Yes, I think you should. You're yeah. missing out. What's the word? You're missing out on the zeitgeist. No, exactly. Hey, uh, thanks for joining us, Mark, for the first time. Look forward to keeping you uh, on board over the next uh, few months. He may have already gone. That's interesting, isn't it? I think he has. Obviously, yeah. uh, this podcast just wasn't exciting enough for him. Richard, thank you for staying on board. <laughs> See you, mate. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Another episode of On the Grid wrapped up and locked in the cam. We'll catch you next week with a wrap of the six hour at Bathurst.